Good afternoon. It is 1 o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Cloudy and 3 degrees. A law firm has released a damning report as it concludes its look at the City of London's harassment and discrimination policies. Shortly before noon today, the city sent out a summary of the independent review that began last April and was run by Reuben Tomlinson, a law firm with a national presence. Part of the review involved going through survey responses from some 180 current and former employees. 49% of those who responded said they'd experienced harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, and or reprisal in the workplace. Over 50 employees said they experienced intimidation, with 6 to 15 saying they were threatened with the termination of their employment over disagreements or conflicts with superiors. More than 15 people described their experiences in the complaints process as where they experienced harassment, discrimination, bullying, intimidation, or reprisal, with one person describing an interview that felt like an attack. The report also outlined seven specific objectives for the city to pursue, including improving employee trust in the internal complaint process and addressing employee fear of reprisal for raising complaints. The the report also requests that the city issue its own report in response within three months. Transport Minister Margarno's closing Canadian skies to Boeing 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 aircraft. He's grounding the planes over safety concerns arising from similarities between Sunday's Ethiopian Airlines crash and October's Lion Air crash. He was asked why the U.S. is continuing to fly the jets, which have also been grounded in Europe, Africa and Asia. All I can say is that based on the new information that we got this morning, that was enough to cause us to make this decision. Uh, the Americans will do their, their own thing. And of course, we, we need to get to the bottom of this with eventually the, the recorders. Boeing has said it has no reason to pull the popular aircraft from the skies and does not intend to issue new recommendations about the aircraft to customers. Ontario's fire marshal will be investigating a blaze in South London that sent one person to hospital in critical condition. A woman was found by fire crews responding to a fire call at 140 Langarth Street West this morning. Officials say the blaze was mostly contained to one unit on the second floor of the apartment building, where firefighters battled thick smoke and zero visibility. Platoon Chief Gary Mossberger. A very small amount of actual fire, mostly contained to the unit itself. From uh, reports, we uh, report that there's uh, detectors that were sounding within the building, which is a great thing for us to know that, uh, you know, occupants are actually utilizing smoke alarms within the the units. And uh, obviously that's a a great thing for us to see. Mossberger would not say whether there was a smoke alarm in the unit where the fire began. Fire officials say the cause, origin and circumstances of today's fire remain under investigation. London City Councillors will have a lot of transit projects to consider when it comes to divvying up government funding. Staff released a list of 19 initiatives that qualify for more than $370 million available to the City of London from the province and Ottawa. The first five are related to London's bus rapid transit plans, including the downtown loop worth $28.5 million, the Wellington Road Gateway at $131.8 million, and the $147.3 million North Connection. Other projects that would support transit include $11.1 million for new sidewalks, and $38.7 million for cycling routes connecting to transit uh, throughout the city. A public participation meeting will be held next Wednesday. You're listening to 980 CFPL. It is Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike's on the road with the London Knights for the rest of the week, so I'll be filling in with him. They're in Guelph tonight, so they aren't traveling far, but the time just didn't work out for him to do the show in London, travel down to Guelph and do the game. 
Uh, we will talk to Mike on the show today. Uh, Knights are about to play their final three games of the season. They're in Guelph tonight, Sault Ste. Marie, Friday night, Saginaw, Saturday night. Three huge games. We'll talk about uh, what's at stake with the uh, London Knights for the regular season with Mike a little bit later on in the program. You can also hear Mike with the call of the Knights game tonight in Guelph. Pre-game is at 6.30. Puck drop is at 7.05. We've got a busy show for you today in his absence. There's a lot to get to. We'll talk about the Junos to start in just a moment here. We're going to talk about the college admissions scam in the United States that has snarled at least one Canadian before the half hour is out. It's quite the story. It's unfair to the students who studied hard to get into these schools and didn't because of this. It's also an insult to the people who have learning disabilities. One of the parts of the story is some kids faked having them. Their parents uh, lied about their kids having learning disabilities as a way to work the scam. So we'll get to that in just a moment. We'll talk about the latest in the Boeing 737 MAX 8 story. The latest from earlier today is they've now been grounded in Canada. We'll talk about how addicted we are to our cell phones. We'll talk about what's going on in the UK with Brexit. We'll talk about Canada's plastic program uh, problem, sorry. And we'll talk about the London Knights, as I said. Up first, though, the Junos. I'm excited to have them here. The fact it's Wednesday already is a reminder of just how fast the week, the week can go. So if you're on the fence about this, you don't have tickets to some of the events uh, throughout the week, uh, a lot of which are sold out, which shows how popular it is, I'd still recommend you go downtown, you try to absorb what you can, because it should be fun. It's It's a party, they've... Done a lot for the downtown for this, so try and enjoy it while it's here because it's going to be gone pretty quickly. Uh, the fact, though, that the Junos are here allows me introduce, uh, to introduce a new bit for the show. Did you know? I didn't know. But did you know? <laughs> That's right. I'm filling in on a show and I've created a new bit. Did you know? Here's some Canadian music facts for you. Did you know? The Juno Awards began in 1970 when Stan Cleese and Walt Grealis, publishers of the weekly trade publication RPM, organized what was first called the Gold Leaf Awards. The following year, the name was changed to honor Pierre Juno, then head of the Canadian Radio, Television, and Communications. Uh, organization. He's the man responsible for creating and implementing the Canadian content regulations. The spelling of the name was changed to Juno, the chief goddess of Roman uh, pantheon. That's one interesting fact. Hey, did you know that Leonard Cohen was discovered by John Hammond, the same Columbia Records representative responsible for discovering Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen? I didn't know that. Hey, did you know that O Canada and God Save the Queen were approved as the national and royal anthems by Parliament in 1967? However, it wasn't until 1980 that legislation was passed officially making O Canada the national anthem. This piece of legislation only applied to the national anthem, not God Save the Queen. You might have known that one, but still, since we were playing the national anthem underneath, I thought I would pass it along. If you didn't know any of that, well, now you know. I'm sorry. But uh, that will be a theme in a segment we do uh, Thursday and Friday as well. So uh, so get ready for it. I will say this. The, the Junos, 
are great for London. I mentioned this on Twitter a couple weeks ago, and I said this when I was on the roundtable with Craig on Monday. I think London's punching above our weight with this. That's not an insult to London. And I had some people push back saying, no, this is, you know, London should strive for these types of events and we're right where we should be. We're, you know, a top 11 city in the country, all of which is true. What I meant by it is we don't have the traditional infrastructure you would normally see for this type of event. Uh, Budweiser Gardens is a wonderful facility, but it's actually a bit small for what they typically do for the Juno Awards. So the Juno host committee led by Chris Campbell have done a fantastic job working this all in and deserve a lot of credit. And what I meant when I said this on Twitter earlier about us punching above our weight is we just don't see these types of events come to London all that often. And London believing in itself, as some people like to say, doesn't matter. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to have London believe in itself to get an event like this one? London believing in itself doesn't get us anything. Again, what does that even mean? We got the Junos because of the expertise and the connections of Chris Campbell, who in his day job works for Tourism London and handles these types of events. Uh, Tourism London's built into, split into like entertainment stuff and sports stuff, and then there's some stuff in between. But he looks after part of uh, the, the music stuff, and he's done a fantastic job. People forget, every city can't just apply to host the Junos. The Junos come to you. They ask you to uh, submit a bid. So London believing in itself doesn't get us a request to put a bid for this whole week. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we should, you know, think more of ourselves as a city in general, but uh, there's so much, you know, just random consultant speak I see on Twitter from people. One of the weird things I see is people on Twitter like to talk like politicians for some reason. We're, we're a society that seems to me anyway to be becoming a bit more cynical in politics. And I'll see people tweet and put on Facebook all the time and social media and saying, you know, it was great to meet and get together with so-and-so as we had lunch, or it was great to talk to so-and-so uh, uh, at, you know, X event about, you know, you know, homelessness or something like that, as if they're a politician. Social media seems to have given people this idea that they get to act like they're more important than they are. No offense to those people. But if we want to, you know, have more events like the Junos, then we have to have the infrastructure in place like the city of London did by making us more music centric as a city that played a role in all of this. There was talk last year about us trying to attract Amazon to London, which was a pipe dream. But again, people are saying, we got to believe in ourselves. You miss every shot you don't take that kind of stuff. And us believing in ourselves had nothing to do with Amazon. We didn't have the infrastructure they wanted. And as it turns out, we wouldn't be able to offer the tax breaks they wanted anyway. But if we want to bring big business to the city, we got to have the infrastructure there. And some of that stuff doesn't always fit with uh, some of the more progressive and sexy things that people want to do, which are also good. But we gloss over the buying of land and having land available and land graded 
uh, for business, depending on the size of business we want to attract. So it's wonderful we have the journalists here. I hope people enjoy and revel in it because London deserves events like this, but they don't just appear out of nowhere. They appear because we did the work beforehand, and they appear because we have people in place to bring them here and then run them successfully, and we get out of their way when they do it. So it's wonderful to have the Junos here, but us believing in ourselves has nothing to do with it. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in with you today. This is not the biggest story on the go right now, but it's one that's generated a lot of conversation, and why not? <laughs> this is uh, this is a good one. I mean, no disrespect, but I cannot remember the last time I talked about Felicity Huffman or Lori Loughlin. Both fine actresses have nothing bad to say about them, aside from the fact they may have committed some form of fraud. Today we have charged 33 parents nationwide with hiring Singer's Group to defraud testing companies and or various universities. These parents are a catalog of wealth and privilege. They include, for example, CEOs of private and public companies, successful securities and real estate investors, two well-known actresses, a famous fashion designer, and the co-chairman of a global law firm. Based on the charges unsealed today, all of them knowingly conspired with Singer and others to help their children either cheat on the SAT or ACT and or buy their children's admission to elite schools through fraud. Singer's clients paid him anywhere between $100,000 and $6.5 million for this service, though the majority paid between $250,000 and $400,000 per student. This case is about the widening corruption of elite college admissions through the steady application of wealth combined with fraud. There can be no separate college admission system for the wealthy, and I'll add that there will not be a separate criminal justice system either. That was Andrew Lelling, the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. Uh, Huffman and Lachlan have been indicted for allegedly taking part in a scheme involving parents who paid bribes of up to $6 million to get their kids into elite colleges like Yale and Harvard. The racketeering conspiracy charges unveiled on Tuesday were also brought against athletic coaches at schools like Wake Forest University, Georgetown, and USC in uh, California. Authorities say the coaches accepted bribes in exchange for admitting students as athletes, regardless of their ability. A Canadian also involved with this, uh, BC businessman, philanthropist uh, David Sadu, has been charged in connection with uh, this scheme. Here is Joseph Bonavolanta from the FBI. Operation Varsity Blues culminated early this morning when approximately 300 special agents from the FBI and the IRS criminal investigations set out to arrest 46 individuals across the country for their roles in an international college admissions bribery and money laundering scam. So far, 38 individuals have been safely taken into custody and seven are working towards surrender, 
one is being actively pursued. Another four are expected to plead guilty here in Boston, two later today, and two in the coming weeks. We believe all of them, parents, coaches, and facilitators, lied, cheated, and covered up their crimes at the expense of hardworking students and taxpayers everywhere. Our investigation began last May after we uncovered evidence of a large-scale elaborate fraud while working an unrelated undercover operation. Following 10 months of intense investigative efforts using a variety of sophisticated techniques, the FBI uncovered what we believe is a rigged system, robbing students all over the country of their right at a fair shot to getting into some of the most elite universities in this country, such as Yale, Stanford, and Georgetown. We believe everyone charged here today had a role in fostering a culture of corruption and greed that created an uneven playing field for students trying to get into these schools the right way through hard work, good grades, and community service. Unfortunately, what many students didn't know was that the odds had already been stacked against them by corrupt practices, including but not limited to bribery, falsification of athletic profiles, and near-perfect SAT and ACT scores that were fraudulently obtained on behalf of other students, when in reality they were far from perfect. Make no mistake, this is not a case where parents were acting in the best interests of their children. This is a case where they flaunted their wealth, sparing no expense, to cheat the system so, so they could set their children up for success with the best education money could buy, literally. Some spent anywhere from $200,000 to $6.5 million for guaranteed admission. Their actions were, without a doubt, insidious, selfish, and shameful. So they aren't messing around. Lachlan is supposed to surrender to the FBI today. Huffman is already out on bail. The college scam they are charged in connection with is the largest ever of its kind. And actually seems pretty easy to pull off. Not that I'm suggesting you do this. The uh, prosecutors say parents paid an admissions consultant $25 million from 2011 through February of 2019 to bribe coaches and administrators to labor their, label their children as recruited athletes to boost their chances of getting into schools. Prosecutors allege that fake athletic profiles were also created to make students look like strong high school athletes when they weren't. Authorities say the consulting company also bribed administrators of college entrance exams to allow a Florida man to take the tests on behalf of students or to replace their answers with his. Those arrested include two SAT administrators, one exam proctor, nine coaches at elite schools, one college administrator, and 33 parents. Uh, the main defendant in this, I shouldn't say the main, but one of the major uh, players in all this is uh, William Singer. He's a defendant. He was paid roughly $25 million by parents to help their kids get into these schools. He helped pay individuals money to take the exams or to improve their scores after the fact. Several 
Defendants, including Huffman, were charged with conspiracy to commit fraud, punishable by up to 20 years in prison. The actresses are charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud. The unsealed documents allege that Huffman and her husband, William H. Macy, made a purported charitable contribution of $15,000 to participate in the college entrance exam cheating scheme on behalf of their eldest daughter. Huffman later made arrangements to pursue the scheme a second time with her younger daughter before she decided not to do that. So if you're the younger daughter, are you offended? Your parents didn't go through with this when they did with your sister, or are you happy? Is that a compliment or an insult? The documents also say that uh, Lachlan and her husband agreed to pay bribes totaling $500,000 in exchange for having their two daughters designated as recruits to the USC crew team, despite the fact that neither participated in crew, thereby facilitating their admission to USC. No students were charged with all of this. Authorities said in many cases the teens were not aware of what was going on. I personally find that a little hard to believe, depending on the individual cases. I can't imagine students not being aware of this. It's not as though this is the first time we've ever heard of parents pulling strings to get their kids into places or parents pulling strings to get their kids anything. A former Yale soccer coach has already pleaded guilty. They helped build the case against the others for this. Authorities say uh, coaches in sports like soccer, tennis, volleyball, all accepted bribes to put students on lists of recruited athletes, regardless of their ability. The investigation began when authorities received a tip about the admissions scheme from someone they were interviewing on a separate case. Prosecutors said parents were also instructed to claim their children had learning disabilities so that they could take the SAT by themselves with extra time. That made it easier to pull off the tampering. And that is one of the really unsavory parts about all of this. Not just the fact that they're pulling the strings, but that you're claiming learning disabilities. That is what I think just annoys me and upsets me about this. Aside from the fact you have honest people who tried hard in school, who tried their best to get into some of these schools and didn't because of this. You do everything right, you play by the rules, and you lost. That shouldn't happen. Here's one of the cases that, you know, kind of, I think, drives home just how nasty this was. One of the people charged in this is a guy by the name of Gordon Kaplan. He's the co-chairman of an international law firm based in New York. He's accused of paying $75,000 to get a test supervisor to correct the answers on her on their daughter's uh, exam after she took it. So in a conversation last June with a cooperating witness, he was told his daughter need, needed to, quote, be stupid when a psychologist evaluated her for learning disabilities in order to get more time for the exam. So here's where I say, you know, some of these kids had to have known. Here's the conversation, according to court papers, that took place. It's the home run of home runs, said the witness. Kaplan asked, and it works? Witness responded, every time. Then both laugh. At one point, Kaplan asked if the schools were concerned with this, and the witness said the schools don't know. Schools don't know. So 
that is where it is uh, today. Huffman already out. Lachlan is going to be surrendering to uh, the FBI uh, later today. Authorities also saying today that the investigation is not over, so there could be more arrests on the way. But this is uh, particularly unsavory. Again, maybe not the biggest story out in the world today, but one everyone's talking about with good reason. And uh, you, you should not be penalized as a student who does well in school, who tries to get into these schools and then does not because of this. And the fact that people are faking learning disabilities is just repugnant. There are people who work hard, who try hard to overcome their learning disabilities, and that is admirable. What is not admirable is pretending to have one to cheat the system. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Uh, Transport Minister Mark Garneau announced earlier today that uh, Canada is grounding all Boeing 737 MAX 8 airplanes in Canada over safety concerns. All due to the crash from the Ethiopian Airlines flight that killed all on board, including 18 Canadians. Garneau says the decision to ground the plane was made after a review of evidence about the aircraft. He has faced quite the dilemma over the aircraft that has been ordered out of the skies for the time being by the European Union, by China, by Australia, New Zealand, and a lot of other countries. Canada and the United States have been notable outliers as more and more countries have restricted the use of those planes. Sunwing Airlines said late last night that it was temporarily grounding all of its MAX 8 aircraft. They have four. And the union representing Air Canada flight attendants have voiced concerns about its members flying on those planes. An Ethiopian Airlines flight crashed Sunday morning just after takeoff in Ethiopia. All 157 people on board died. It was the second crash of a MAX 8 in six months. Garneau made his announcement just before noon today. I want to play you part of that news conference. I'll play his statement and then one of the questions that he was asked. Uh, first, here's his statement. And as a heads up, there is some French in this. It will be translated, but I thought it was, here to, it was important to hear the whole thing uh, unimpeded. The... Tragic accident of the Ethiopian flight that occurred a few days ago uh, has really touched the hearts of many, many Canadians, not only because uh, it was uh, such a tragic accident with 157 people who lost their lives, but also because 18 of them were Canadians. And, and in the last few days, we've all had the chance to get to know a little bit about those Canadians and the profiles that have been on television. And uh, it's uh, driven things home to us uh, in, in a very personal way. And I know that very many Canadians uh, have been very moved by uh, the tributes to these Canadians and realize that this was a great loss for our country. So uh, it is something that has really uh, viscerally um, caught the attention of Canadians. Uh, I, my department, and in fact the entire aviation industry worldwide is seized uh, with the fatal crash on Sunday, March the 10th, involving an Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 8 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And what we need to do now to address any possible resulting safety issues. 
After the accident, I convened Trans Transport Canada civil aviation experts uh, who consulted with the aviation industry, our international partners, and those who are actually flying aircraft to, con to conduct an assessment uh, of the operation of this particular aircraft. The advice they have provided is based on the information that they have been receiving, the requirements for new procedures and training for Boeing 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9 flight crews that, they, that we have already put in place here in Canada, and their own knowledge and expertise. The panel has been reviewing the latest data in real time, and I can assure you it's been occupying our time 100% for the past few days. As a result of new data that we received this morning uh, and uh, had the chance to analyze, and on the advice of my experts, and as a precautionary measure, I am issuing a safety notice. This safety notice restricts commercial passenger flights from any operator of the Boeing 737 MAX 8 or MAX 9 variant aircraft, whether domestic or foreign, from arriving, departing or overflying Canadian airspace. This safety notice is effective immediately and will remain in place until further notice. The new information, and I hasten to say, this is new information uh, that we received and analyzed this morning comes from validated satellite tracking data just a possible although unproven similarity in the flight profile of the Lion Air aircraft and I caution that this new information is not conclusive and that we must await further evidence hopefully from the voice and data recorders as the investigations have just started, it is too soon to speculate about the exact cause of the accident in Addis Ababa and to make direct links to the Lion Air accident in Indonesia in October of 2018. Toutefois, mon ministère suit de près les enquêtes du Conseil national de la sécurité des transports. Following the investigations by the National Transportation Safety Board, the Federal Aviation Administration and the Ethiopian Civil Aviation Authority. Following uh, the um, accident in October 2018 involving a Boeing 737 MAX, Transport Canada immediately worked in cooperation with concerned Canadian operators, that is Air Canada, WestJet and Sunwing, to resolve the, issue, the security issue that was highlighted in the conclusions of the preliminary investigation following the Lion Air uh, crash. Following this work, uh, Canadian air operators were forced to establish new procedures and train mandatory training for uh, flight crews. These Canadian requirements for new procedures and training sought to protect against the risk identified, and they went above and beyond the measures directed by the United States Federal Aviation Administration and Boeing, and above and beyond what other nations have done. It is important to note that Canada has an enviable aviation safety record. There are two 
for this. First of all, there is the professionalism and the safety first focus of Canada's aviation industry. Those who design and manufacture aircraft, those who maintain them, our airports, our air traffic controllers, and of course those who operate and fly the aircraft. It is also due to the world-class knowledge, expertise and relentless focus on safety by Transport Canada officials who, with whom I work, who are responsible for developing regulations and ensuring compliance with those regulations. officials continue to monitor the situation and work with international partners, including the investigation agencies and certifying authorities to establish the conditions for the safe return to service. I will not hesitate to take swift action should discover any additional safety issues. Canadians expect and are entitled to a safe transportation system today and for the future. I want them to be able to fly with confidence. Thank you very much. So that's Mark Garneau speaking earlier today. I want to play one question he was asked because I think it's the question most people are asking right now. This is in French. It's translated, but again, I think it's worth hearing. There were a number of countries that made their decisions faster. Can you explain why was there the delay? Were there was there pressure from the Americans or for the company? Why did you take longer? Well, let me respond to you by saying that I'm now putting on my engineer hat and not my politician's hat. And my... My uh, former astronaut's hat as well. And the reality is that when an incident occurs, we need to know exactly what has happened before we jump to conclusions or before we are influenced by our emotions or politics. We need to uh, precisely analyze what happened. And I have said from the very beginning, what happened this morning is that we were given new information that we analyzed, and I said in any case that as soon as we had information that steered us in a certain direction, we would take that direction. And today, we decided that given the comparison with the previous flight, based on the information we received this morning, it was prudent to make this decision. So we have always respected our approach, our professional approach, I believe, concerning the analysis of this accident. That's Transport Minister Mark Garneau speaking earlier today. We need to pause when we return all of more on this topic. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. We're talking about the Boeing 737 MAX 8 story. In case you missed it, Canada has grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 8 airplanes in Canada over safety concerns. Transport Minister Mark Garneau says the decision to ground the plane was made after a review of the evidence about the aircraft. Uh, Canada and the United States had been some pretty notable countries that were not doing this. A lot of uh, to the rest of the world, basically. Uh, had restricted the use of these planes in recent days. The United States still just about the only country left that allows their uh, MAX 8 airplanes to be in the sky. Uh, to get some perspective on this, we are joined by Mary Schiavo. She's a former U.S. Transportation Department Inspector General. She's now a lawyer who represents victims of airplane crashes. Thanks for your time today. 
Thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, Boeing has said there is a no cause to ground their aircraft. Is that something you would uh, agree with? Uh, no, and the statement, I mean, you cannot, you can't even believe that they made such a statement. They've lost two planes. The second one is still a mystery, brand new planes. To find anything like this in history, you'd have to go back to the comet fiasco back in the, you know, the mid-century, uh, last century to have anything comparable to this. That statement is laughable on its face. Uh, the cause of the crash hasn't been determined, or if it has, it hasn't been revealed as we speak right now. Does that does it make sense to wait for that determination, or if we have two crashes within five months, it's better to maybe act first, and then if the cause is something else, then you can act accordingly? Well, of course, it's better to act and to err on the side of safety, which is what the rest of the world is doing. But the United States Federal Aviation Administration, this is classic FAA. So what they are saying, and if you read their uh, pronouncements very carefully, they're, they're playing a word game. What they're saying is, well, you know, this plane had an airworthiness certificate, and until we're presented with evidence that it has a problem, we're just going to go back to the airways certificate. Well, it should be their job to go out there and find it, and indeed evidence has surfaced on the FAA's own databases of pilot report lines that they've had at least five reports of U.S. pilots on this plane that have had problems. It's interesting watching how this has been responded to by different airlines and countries around the world. Uh, Here in Canada, we've been pretty much in lockstep with the FAA up until this morning. Uh, Canadian government just recently, just before we uh, started talking, announced they got new information and they have restricted operation of the MAX 8 in Canadian airspace. Uh, Some of our planes here in Canada were already restricted going to other countries, so you can almost see this coming. But I'm, I'm just wondering why... Canada and the United States have been slower to act than maybe other parts of the world. Well, I think because we have a tradition of a partnership on aviation safety and many other things, and I think when the Federal Aviation Administration said, you know, there's no there's no cause for alarm here, people, we don't have to react, I think we're just used to this partnership, and that partnership usually works. That's not usually a bad thing that the countries work together, but here I think uh, the FAA will probably have em- embarrassed its counterpart in Canada by not telling Canada that what they were really doing is repeating what Boeing had told them instead of doing an independent review. Uh, Boeing uh, came out a couple of days ago. They were saying they have uh, a, a patch of sorts to fix some problems that have been identified. We're seeing you know, reports of pilots saying they're aware of issues with the MAX 8. Uh, however, those that fix isn't coming until April. It, it seems a little silly it takes that long to put it in when they've been working on something supposedly for a couple months. They know it exists, but it, it takes until April to fully implement it. Well, yes, and and information that's coming out from behind the scenes is that there's not an agreement necessarily per se on how they're going to do that, which is even more troubling. Without the fix, all we have to do is resort to the Federal Aviation Administration's very own language, and it said, and this is an exact quote, that without uh, changes, you'll have difficulty controlling the airplane. It will lead to excessive nose-down attitudes, significant altitude loss, and... Here's the, the, the polite way they put this, quote, possible impact with terrain, end quote. So saying that, well, we're in the process of working on it, we won't have the fix in place until April, but until then the plane is safe is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, a, a sane person could not say that. 
The FAA is playing a, a really important role in this because Boeing is based in the United States. So theoretically, if they were to say we're grounding this, it grounds it around the world, right? Yes, because that what that means is the airworthiness certificate is is no longer valid. And the way it works around the world is by treaty. So we recognize other nations' sovereignty to decide if something made in their country is airworthy. Just like we look to France, when France says the Airbus is airworthy, we say, okay. So the rest of the world, if we say a Boeing is airworthy, the rest of the world says, okay. They can, they can do their own checks, et cetera. But it's a comedy of um, the, the treaty respect that we do that. Because, you know, Canada waited so long, I saw, I was reading some stories this morning, and I imagine that'd be similar in the United States, you know, uh, talking to passengers who are about to get on a 737 MAX 8, a little, uh, little nervous about it. I don't blame them. Uh, would you be comfortable flying on one of these planes right now? No. No, and it's just common sense. I mean, what, what did, did Boeing really think they'd say, pay no attention to those two craters in the earth and 350 deceased people? No, it's ridiculous. Of course, people should be, be concerned. That's what an informed consumer does. It questions and tries to make sure that they can protect themselves and do the best they can for their families. And no, I would not get on one until they figure out what's going wrong <clears throat> and completed the uh, repairs. If they had just said, listen, there, there is an issue, we, we are going to work to fix it, and we will do it as soon as possible, I mean, it, it's still not great because lives have been lost, but it's, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a risk of losing confidence with the way this has been handled. Uh, that's exactly right, and, and, and Boeing is, I mean, I think they've handled this terribly. Uh, they made an initial ill-advised statement, and now they're trying to put their you know, their whole machinery behind uh, propping up this ill-advised statement instead of saying, you know, we, here's how they could save face. They say, we have just gotten additional information from the Ethiopia crash, and we want to make safety our number one priority and be cautious. We're going to say, please don't fly the plane until we can get this fixed. The problem, you know, all of a sudden your image of Boeing is dramatically improved, and I don't know why they don't do that. They're going to have to. There's no choice. You have to fix this plane. But right now it seems like the United States Federal Aviation Administration is betting our lives on the fact, uh, on the hope that there won't be another one. Why do you think they didn't do that? Because it, it makes sense to me to do that, but uh, it's, it's a curious decision not to. Well, I think because they have, uh, for this model, no, not for the company. The company will be fine. They have so many different things that they're working on. But for this particular model, because what's gone wrong was a fix to keep the plane, you know, flying straight and level. In other words, they hung the new engines on this plane, and then the plane tended to pitch up, which is dangerous. So they put the software in to pitch the nose down. So when you peel back the, you know, the layers of the onion, what you find is you've got a problem with the plane, and the fix did work. So if you have to remove the fix, you have to go back and fix the underlying problem. And I think that's what my opinion is, is that's what they're trying to avoid. Because in the most recent directive from the Federal Aviation Administration, March 11, 2019, they say that the changes that they have to make by April include that they limit this MCAS system, the system that pushes the nose down, so it can't push the nose all what they call full stop down, full trim down, as happened in Lion Air. So they're trying to get by with just limiting what this system can do rather than going back and re-engineering the underlying problem. We will follow this with interest. Mary, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you.
That's Mary Schiavo, former U.S. Transportation Department Inspector General. She's now a lawyer who represents the victims of airline crashes. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Just enough time to tee up the second hour of the program. We'll be talking about uh, cell phones, uh, cell phone usage. We'll be talking about Brexit and London's or Canada's plastic problem. All that and more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We're to the second hour of the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Do we spend too much time on our cell phones? I was just looking at mine. I'd say the answer is probably yes. Uh, do kids spend too much time on their cell phones? The answer also yes. Uh, do kids spend too much time on their cell phones at school? Probably yes, even if uh, they aren't. It's maybe how they're using them at school. As we uh, know, the Ontario government now plans to ban cell phones in classrooms starting next year. That, to me, is a perfect jumping-off point to talk about just how attached to the hip we are to our cell phones. Uh, Not just, you know, students, but everyone. Our smartphones can really impact how we interact with one another. They can impact our relationship. Uh, Jean uh, Twingy is a psychologist, speaker, and author. If this uh, topic interests you, you may want to check out her book, iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up uh, Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Uh, Jean uh, joins us now. I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Glad to be here. How big of an issue is our smartphone usage? Well, uh, it's pretty big. So... We know uh, that young people in particular spend around eight hours a day of their time outside of school on their phones. And as you mentioned, they're also spending a lot of time on their phones um, in class when they're supposed to be paying attention, uh, as well as during the lunch period at school when they really should be talking to each other and developing social skills. How does this impact some of those social skills and some of the relationships we might have had as, as kids growing up without smartphones? You know, it's a really big difference being a teen today compared to even 10 years ago, not to mention 20 or 30 years ago, that now the norm for teens to communicate with each other is social media and texting. They're, they spend a lot of time um, with their phones, communicating with their friends, and a lot less time actually hanging out with their friends face-to-face, having conversation, or going to the mall, or riding around in a car, or going to a party. They do those things a lot less than previous generations did. So electronic communication seems to have replaced a lot of face-to-face social interaction. Some of the impacts I think are interesting if we're looking at kids who maybe are less rebellious, maybe a bit more tolerant, both both good things, but also at the same time unhappy and really not prepared for when they might, you know, impact or run into someone in person who doesn't act like you might act online. It's it's very different interacting with people online to offline, obviously. Yeah, and there that has a lot of implications. So the first, as you mentioned, is in terms of happiness and mental health, that people spend a lot of time with others face-to-face tend to be happier. Those who spend more time in front of a screen tend to be less happy. And that's exactly what teens are doing now. Then there's the whole element of social skills and learning how to have disagreements with people and conflict resolution. And that's the other real fear 
is that with teens communicating so much online that they're going to be more uncomfortable having discussions with people face-to-face. And sure enough, that's what uh, a lot of young students tell me. They say, I don't know, talking to somebody face-to-face, I can't think about what I'm going to say like I can you know, when I'm texting or using social media. So much of what we do today, you know, as adults, sometimes you can have, uh, you know, a, a, an iPad or some or a tablet device that could be used for educational purposes. Maybe they're using a classroom. Maybe it's for home. Maybe you use it just as an ebook. We don't exactly help the situation by having all these different versions of the same problem um, when we're looking at smartphones. So we don't it, it's we don't make it easy for kids to try and break some of these habits. Yeah, exactly. And it's a tough balance to strike because there's a lot of educational benefits to technology as well. But, you know, I think there's a good middle ground, which is we want to use the technology for what it's good for, for learning, for looking up information, for doing homework, um, you know, maybe a, you know, electronic textbook. Because then it's a collective experience usually with the class. You know, all the whole class is watching a video together, or reading the same textbook, or able to look up information. But that has to be separated from a kid looking at his smartphone in the middle of the class when he's supposed to be paying attention, or the entire cafeteria of kids looking at their phones when they really should be talking to each other. So that's why I think this idea of banning personal smartphones during the school day is a good one, because you can do that, you can get rid of those distractions, but then you can still keep some of the benefits of technology for education. It also reinforces that, you know, there's times where you can just put your phone down and it's okay. So even if that's not maybe the primary benefit with some of these bands, that, you know, as a secondary aspect, just getting used to operating without it in your hand all the time can be beneficial. I think that's a big benefit for for this generation of teens that that I call iGen. Because they've grown up with this technology. If they have to have it set aside for the six, six and a half hours of the school day, what good practice that is for being able to have a paid job or just being able to concentrate on reading something that they're not always picking up the phone. So being able to take that break from the phone can potentially have benefits for their attention span as well. Do you think the public's becoming more aware of the impact uh, this type of screen time is having on us? Just in the last year or two, there's certainly been more discussion around this issue. Um, but I think there's still a lot of denial out there. I think there's a lot of still you know, misinformation out there. I am glad to see that there are more school districts who are taking this seriously, who realize you know, it doesn't have to be completely black and white, that it's not that we're going to go back to 1985 and not be able to show videos or have electronic textbooks or use the Internet, that we can do that, but then make sure that students aren't too distracted when they're supposed to be learning. What sort of advice would you have for parents when they're thinking of, okay, what's the right age or a good age to start kids with smartphones? Uh, Well, some parents today say that age should be 30, um, kind of like some parents say that about dating. Um, I think realistically, there's not any real absolute need for teens to have their own smartphone until they start driving. At that point, I think it makes sense for safety and the GPS and maps function and so on. Um, I think a good rule of thumb is maybe when you start high school, around 14. And that's considerably later than most kids get their first smartphone. One poll recently found that the average kid now gets her first smartphone at the age of 10, which I think is clearly too young. I can't even imagine what, I mean, I'm, I'm not a 10-year-old 
uh, girl or, or boy, I just can't imagine what you have to talk about at 10, but maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. Well, you know, they have lots to talk about with their friends, but they should be doing that in a actual phone conversation or perhaps um, they could use FaceTime on their parents' phone or iPad or they could actually get together with them face-to-face and go ride bikes. That's, you know, what we used to do. And it's not just that, you know, us older people are saying, oh, you know, that's what we used to do, so it's right. We know that that's actually a healthier way to exist, actually being with friends face-to-face and getting exercise as opposed to sitting in your bedroom alone looking at a screen. It's an interesting conversation, uh, Jean. I appreciate you having it with me. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That is uh, Jean Twenge, uh, psychologist, uh, speaker, and author. And it's funny she mentioned uh, riding bikes because um, this is one of those topics, and I, I, I always, I, I'm not going to, where you always say, well, back in my day, because that was just like, that's such a cliched thing. To say and do, but um, back in my day, no, I'm just, <laughs> you know, I, I used to. There was a kid on my street when I was growing up. We would, um, we would, we would play, we would play bikes. We just ride the bike up and down and piss off our neighbors going up their driveway and stuff. And um, obviously, I mean, kids still ride bikes, but um, just getting outside and enjoying being outside, not having to be tethered to the electronics. Um, is important. Uh, technology is fantastic. I mean, I, I have my iPhone with me right now. I'm holding it in my hand right now just for the purposes of this, but it's so it's so easy with, you know, I've got the a newer phone, so I don't even have to type in a, a code to get in. I can just look at my face, and I'm, I'm on the Internet and doing everything. So it's, it's not an anti-technology thing or, a, you know, old versus young, because, you know, I see so many people who are... Um, newer to the smartphone, who are older, not old, older, because I know people get uh, touchy with age, older, but it's, it's new to them. So, you know, they're, they're, they are just like a lot of people just, you know, sucked into their phone and they're like 50, 60, 70 years old, just sucked into their phone doing it. So it's not just, you know, a, a, a gen, a millennial thing, a teen thing whatsoever. This is more than just teens, but some of those habits we can uh, maybe correct when we're teens so that when you're a little bit older, that it's a, a different experience, but it's a worthy conversation to have. Uh, we need to pause when we come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. If you haven't been following what's going on in the UK, you might want to check it out. Another blow has been dealt to Prime Minister Theresa May as the British Parliament voted down the latest version of her divorce deal with the European Union. The eyes to the right, 242. The nose to the left, 391. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock. So it wasn't even close. 391 to 242. Here is May speaking after yesterday's vote. I profoundly regret the decision that this House has taken tonight. I continue to believe that by far the best outcome is that the United Kingdom leaves the European Union in an orderly fashion with a deal. The lost vote was jumped on by Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. He wants there to be a general election. Prime Minister has run down the clock and the clock has been run out on her. Maybe it's time instead we had a general election and the people could, people could choose who their government should be. 
Now, May has confirmed that Parliament's going to go and ahead and decide between leaving the European Union with no deal and delaying Brexit. So a vote on no deal will happen later today with a possible vote tomorrow on whether to seek an extension that would delay their departure on March 29th. If they vote against the no deal, that vote tomorrow becomes more important. If they vote in favor of the no deal, then that vote tomorrow may not even happen. Uh, to talk about this, we're joined by Dan Gorman. He's a professor of history at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Were you surprised that the latest uh, deal by uh, Theresa May was uh, voted down uh, by MPs yesterday? Um, not particularly. Um I mean, some of the uh, feedback coming out of the EU yesterday was uh, to call this Groundhog Day uh, <laughs> um, because this is uh, essentially the same deal that May has been trying to sell since last November when it was negotiated. Um, there have been some modifications around the margins, but the deal is essentially the same deal that she's brought to the House uh, previously. So the outcome was not surprising. Uh, she was able to convince uh, uh, a few dozen of the sort of uh, Tory rebels to vote with her this time, uh, but she was still decisively defeated. Uh, it's one of the uh, uh, five worst defeats uh, that a government has uh, suffered in the House in the last hundred years. So that uh, uh, says something about her uh, inability to uh, uh, you know, have the confidence of the House. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a bad couple of weeks for her. I mean, she's kind of racking up these historic uh, defeats. Uh, she's narrowly surviving these uh, leadership challenges, but it's uh, it's been a rough go as Prime Minister. One of the issues is the fact that, uh, while the United Kingdom here is wants to leave, there's still, you know, Ireland and, and Scotland, some other parts that uh, might feel a little bit differently. And so since there's borders here, that's part of the, the 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 difficulties in finding a deal, right? Yes, um, I mean the um, negotiations for Brexit are are almost insanely complicated, <laughs> um, and have involved hundreds of negotiators and specialists and so forth uh, on on both sides. And to a great degree, they've actually succeeded. Um, I mean, from the EU's perspective, the uh, agreement that they had negotiated um, by last November um, satisfies their positions, uh, and they see no need to continue to negotiate, which is why they have not been giving May uh, uh, any of the compromises that she's gone back to ask them for over the last few months. Um, but yes, I mean, in, in many ways, the Brexit debate boils down to Ireland, because uh, um, the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, of course, is the, is the only land border that the UK has with the EU. Um, so depending on what the Brexit agreement, uh, the ultimate Brexit agreement uh, um, says, um, that border will either be a hard border with customs agents and, and so forth and so on, uh, or it'll be a so-called soft border. Um, and that's what they're debating, um, because for the uh, Brexiteers, the pro sort of the hardcore pro-Brexit uh, camp, um, especially in the Tory party, they don't want any um, sort of compromises on that border, uh, because any compromise they see as essentially uh, um, keeping Great Britain in the EU through the back door. 
They are going to be voting later today on whether or not to uh, leave the EU without a deal. What do you think are the chances they vote in favor of leaving the EU without a deal? Uh, May will almost certainly win. Uh, I mean, no deal is not in the interests of anyone at this point. Uh, Last year, some of the um, sort of hardcore uh, pro-Brexit side um, would have preferred a no deal um, uh, as opposed to sort of a soft Brexit, uh, if you will. But at this point, as the deadline is coming up, uh, I mean, Britain is, at least right now, scheduled to leave the EU in two weeks, uh, and they have no deal right now. So May will probably, almost certainly, win the vote today, especially because she has uh, um, declared it a free vote so that uh, any member of her party uh, is free to vote as they, as they will, which is a real sort of damning indictment of uh, um, her weakness now as both the leader of her party and the prime minister, um, because to declare a free vote... Uh, is essentially to declare that you've lost the confidence uh, of your party in the House. But she'll probably win that, uh, and then they'll go to a vote tomorrow on uh, whether to ask the EU for an extension um, on so-called Article 50, which is the um, uh, provision that they're negotiating to leave. It's uh, it's just the series of events that, I mean, they are in such a bad position. Assuming they vote uh, against a no deal, um, it's one thing to say they want uh, to have an extension to uh, push back when they leave the EU, which as it stands right now is March 29th. What do you think the chances are uh, the EU says, sure, we'll give you an extension? Uh, that's an open question. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's to the EU's advantage to give Britain at least a short-term extension. Um, I mean, the EU doesn't gain anything if Britain leaves with no deal in two weeks, um, mostly because if there's no deal in two weeks, there's going to be utter chaos (laughs) in the United Kingdom, some of which will spill over uh, uh, to citizens of the EU. the EU has stated, so Angela Merkel has stated this week that she would be fine with giving Great Britain uh, a temporary extension. Um, but the EU has also stated that they will not renegotiate the deal uh, which they had struck late last year. Um, so, an extension of the um, an extension to Article 50 from the EU's perspective won't change anything. Um, but the idea there is to give uh, uh, the government more time to uh, deal with some of the consequences of Brexit itself. Uh, and that's where all the pressure is in uh, Britain itself right now, um, because the fact that Parliament has not been able to come to some decision has led the business community, uh, unions, uh, ordinary people on the high street uh, to sort of throw up their hands uh, and in some cases start to panic. You mentioned chaos. What what does chaos look like? In, in, in the hypothetical, there's a no deal and they leave March 29th. What sort of uh, uh, <laughs> problems are they staring at? Well, there could be all, all sorts. So the, the government um, finally came out today with some of their uh, um, sort of plans for a no-deal Brexit. Um, 
So they published a whole uh, table of uh, tariffs, for instance. So the government has declared that for most products, they'll uh, sort of uh, charge no tariffs at all, which is fine for some products, but for other products, uh, steel, for instance, uh, the unions are up in arms because they argue that that's going to cost uh, British jobs. Um, but then there are other products um, for which there will be tariffs, and those are basic things uh, like beef and lamb, uh, butter, uh, uh, even underwear, which <laughs> there's a, a strong uh, industry to produce in Great Britain, um, and specifically for nylon. Uh, so again, these are just all everyday goods that will become more expensive, uh, and especially for Britons uh, on a fixed income, um, that's going to affect their day-to-day lives. Um, there's going to be massive traffic problems uh, on the British side of the channel where, of course, lots of uh, goods are being shipped in from the EU. So a lot of those things, those goods will have to be uh, inspected now by customs agents, by uh, you know, safety officers and so forth. So there's fears that there'll be delays there. And then even on the transition itself, if there's no deal, um, there's a fear that uh, people will, uh, in the days before um, the 29th, um, sort of uh, engage in panic buying and so forth. So there are provisions to have extra police on the streets uh, and so forth. Um, It's hard to say what would actually happen, um, but the business community, unions, uh, and again, many ordinary people on the streets uh, are beginning to realize that, by and large, Brexit, at least in the short term, is going to cost Britain's money. If only someone had warned the Brits that this might happen if they were to vote in favor of this when they had the referendum. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, Dan, I certainly appreciate the uh, time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's Dan Gorman from the University of Waterloo. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Hope you're enjoying Juno Week. I know it's uh, really, we're only halfway through. Uh, lots to go. Even if you're saying, listen, Juno, not my thing, I'd encourage you to get out and experience it in some way. Think of it as a party. A cool event has come to London, and who knows when it's going to be back, if ever. So uh, take advantage of it while it's here. I want to shift our focus to the idea of banning single-use plastics in Ontario. The average Ontarian generates nearly a metric ton of waste each year, and at the rate at which waste is diverted away from landfills, that has stalled at around 30% over the past 15 years. A ban on single-use plastics would include items like bags, water bottles, and straws. The uh, government Uh, The Ontario government, as we learned earlier this week, is considering this. The government recently released a discussion paper on reducing litter and waste. It's asking for the public uh, to have their input on how to address this problem. One question it asks is whether a span on single-use plastics would be effective in reducing plastic waste. To talk about this, we're joined by Vito Bonsante, the Plastics Program Manager for Environmental Defence, a Canadian environmental advocacy group. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Well, well, just to start at the beginning, how bad is Canada's plastic pollution problem right now? Uh, well, comparing to the rest of the world, pretty bad. I mean, uh, Canada is, uh, and especially Ontario, is one of the biggest waste generators in general, uh, per, per capita, obviously. 
So uh, each uh, inhabitant of Ontario generates about or over one ton of waste a year, <clears throat> and a lot of it is plastic. And that problem is even becomes even worse because uh, Canada, in general, recycles only 11% of its uh, plastic waste. Why are we so bad? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's a matter of also of uh, consumption patterns, uh, but it's also because uh, it's uh, pretty cheap to dispose the plastic uh, rather than uh, recycling. So there's many landfills in Canada. Uh, putting uh, <clears throat> waste to landfill is uh, is uh, cheaper than in other countries, and so there's no. Uh, real incentive to reduce our waste footprint. When we are looking at, as we are in Ontario right now, uh, I guess a single-use, uh, a ban on single-use plastic, would something like that be, be effective in reducing our plastic waste? Well, absolutely. Like, uh, There's a lot of narrative around uh, plastic waste and plastic entering the environment as being an individual responsibility. But the reality is that we are flooded with huge amounts of plastic. It's almost impossible to go shopping for an average consumer and avoid plastic or even, actually, to be honest, avoiding over-packaging of, uh, of plastic. And so the only way to to stop that flow of pl- plastic uh, entering the environment is really to stopping it at source and uh, uh, eliminating uh, single-use plastic and shifting towards more reuse and more uh, recovery of, of materials is the is the best way to go. You mentioned just how much plastic there is out there. Is there such a thing as good plastic out there, or is it all bad? Well, you know, plastic is uh, is a pretty good material right it's uh, it's uh, it's light it's uh, it's cheap it's it's easy to make and uh, uh, the problem is the way we treat plastic and we treat it as a as a material that has no value but plastic lasts pretty much forever and uh, it then it doesn't make sense that we use it for in ways that you know like we just use it for a few minutes and we throw it away. So the the entire concept of throwaway plastic is bad. Plastics that is durable uh, actually help us a lot, and uh, and all can also help the environment. It's it's too bad, you know. And uh, environmentally, it could be such a problem because it is one of the greatest inventions we've we've had with all the uses. <laughs> For sure. I mean, uh, when uh, when plastic was invented uh, uh, over 60 years ago, uh, it substituted uh, uh, uses that uh, were making a lot of pressure on uh, on the environment or on animals. Like um, plastic substituted, uh, um, let's say, uh, I don't know, billiard ball or uh, uh, keys of pianos were made of ivory, uh, and so we were killing a lot of elephants and and. And now, you know, thanks to plastics, like such durable materials could have been made of plastic. But then at some point we started to, from the plastic bag on, starting to make more and more plastic that would end up uh, right away into the, into the bin. And that became a problem. We are joined on the line by Vito Buonsante, the Plastics Program Manager for Environmental Defense. A lot is made of plastic straws. The straws alone, certainly not uh, getting rid of them, a solution to all this. But why do you think they've become sort of a, a vanguard for the, uh, the the increased focus on plastic these days? Well, I think it 
because the straws in in most of their uses represent like a product that is fairly useless. Um, you know, for let's say 99% of the population and let's say 99% of the uses of straws, it people really don't need them and and so you know being given straws by default and knowing that straws are never recycled because they're they're so light they end up into the environment and knowing the damage they make to the environment like we've seen images of wildlife of turtles and and other animals being choked by by these uh, uh by these straws make them a good symbol of of why we should change the way we use plastic and we think about plastic I know your group has pushed the federal government to create a national plastics strategy to get us plastic-free by hopefully 2025. Uh, What would be involved in something like a, a national plastics strategy? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few components in a plastic strategy from, from our point of view. Like, our goal is to get no plastic entering the environment by 2025, and, and there are a few things that are needed. Some of them are, are banning uh, many uh, types of plastics, especially the ones that never get recycled. So changing from, re- you know, like the concept of something recyclable to act something actually recycled, so keeping on the market only things that actually get recycled, and then shifting to more and more reuse and, uh, and first of all, uh, making the most important R of the three R's, the, uh, the refuse, like let's minimize the amount of plastic we put on the market. How accustomed do you think Canadians are used to plastic? Is it that uh, we like our plastic, or if there was another product that came along that uh, is maybe better, more biodegradable, or better for the environment that works just the same? Canadians would really wouldn't have a problem moving from one item to the other. I I am pretty sure that uh, you know Canadians don't choose packaging, don't choose a pro- product because the packaging is in plastic. It's uh, it's imposed uh, to us as consumers. Like uh, Canadians uh, choose on the basis, like on the price and on the product and 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 uh, on the convenience. But but I'm pretty sure that understanding the the threat that uh, all this uh, single-use plastic is uh, is. Uh, mm, uh, is giving out to the environment, they will accept, they will gladly accept the change and some level of inconvenience that a ban will will bring. Vito, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Devin. That's Vito Buonsante, Plastics Program Manager for Environmental Defense. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs uh, today. Mike's uh, traveling with the team. Uh, Knights uh, play the Guelph Storm tonight. You can hear that game on 980 CFPL. 6.30 is the pregame puck drop just after uh, 7 o'clock. Just because I'm in for Mike doesn't mean you have to go without Mike. I've actually uh, been able to uh, wrangle uh, Mike in just before uh, you guys leave uh, for uh, for the game. Uh, thanks for coming in for a couple minutes. Well, thanks for filling in. I really like listening to the show when you're doing the show. So <laughs> is that okay? That's I mean that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I'm glad someone does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm happy to be here listening to the show in person. You're miss. I mean, I, I we're, we're earlier today we were talking about this college admissions uh, scam that came down yesterday, which is just it's just. Uh, 
I would put nothing past parents from this point on. Interactions with parents throughout sports. Uh, it just makes you realize, and maybe it's it's not to be faulted entirely, but parents will do anything to get their kids ahead. And sometimes, if you border on the illegal, uh, you'll run into trouble. So I think we've got to have parents drawing at least some sort of line in the sand that they won't cross. But yeah, this, to me, this is not surprising whatsoever. The fact that somebody decided to step in the way of maybe the old-fashioned way of, maybe I'll buy a wing in the library. I'll give you guys a million bucks and then, well, you know, and, you know, whatever happened after that. But to have somebody step in and kind of curate this as seems to have happened, I'm not surprised whatsoever. I'm amazed. Like some guy made $25 million doing it. I'm slightly impressed. How much of that does he get to keep (laughs) now if there's a legal activity? That's what I want to know because, yeah, it may have been because it's – well, it's still a crime, but he may one day look back on it and say, yeah, they took half. I was still left with 12 and a half. That was still worth it. He yeah. could easily say that. And again, I, I mean, uh, I, this is something that doesn't infuriate me because it, it happens. It is unfair to the kids who try hard and do do good in school and get pushed aside because of this. For some of the parents who are pretending their kids had learning disabilities, that's an insult to kids who have learning disabilities who have to overcome that. But it's it's not – this is – I mean this is kind of how the world works sometimes. So I'm, I'm glad people have been caught doing this. Yeah. But as you say, not surprising. Yeah. And here's the thing. Will this deter anybody from trying it again? I think there are still people out there trying to do it right now because they want their kids. We see all the crazy stories about not just colleges and universities but preschools where you've got a three-year-old and they are trying to get into this private preschool and – they're willing to pay money. It's nursery school. I mean, the best <laughs> thing you can do is read to your child at home. This is, uh, it's bordering on the nutty. And, you know, for the kids' sake, I hope it relaxes a little bit because it ends up pushing, putting unwarranted pressure on a lot of kids. And I think that will have after effects too, which you didn't have to have in the first place. Uh One of the constants we have in life is this. Another constant is the London Knights doing very, very well. And the London Knights are going into their final uh, week of the season. They've got three games, one tonight in Guelph. They're in the Sioux Friday and in Saginaw Saturday night. How big of a final three games is this for the London Knights? I haven't seen as big a run simply because you're taking the top four teams in the Western Conference. London is number one right now. Saginaw is two points behind after a win last night. Then you have Sault Ste. Marie third and Guelph fourth. And they've been playing each other for about a week and a half. The Knights played Saginaw on Saturday. Guelph played Saginaw on Friday. Uh, Saginaw and Sault Ste. Marie have two games coming up this week. They just keep playing each other. I haven't seen the schedule work out that way. It, it kind of looks at it from two different perspectives. One, if you want to be playoff ready, you're playing some of the best of the best the OHL can offer this week. So this will help you ramp up your game. The other part of it is there's still stuff to decide. And you're going to see London and Saginaw on Saturday night maybe having some pure meaning. This could decide whether or not the Knights have a shot at the Western Conference or whether Saginaw has a shot at finishing first in the Western Conference. So these are massive games. And then you add in the other little intangible of they're probably going to meet in the second round. Some form of London versus Saginaw, London versus Guelph, or London versus Sault Ste. Marie could be a second round matchup. 
This is your last chance to say, this is who we are. We're going to leave you with an impression. Because of that, our teams maybe like they've played each other a bunch already, especially the Knights in the Storm. Do teams kind of say, you know, what we've been working on some stuff, we don't want to show it to you, or do they say, you know, for the Knights, we really want that one seed, we're going for it? I wonder if the Storm would be in a position like that because they're fourth. They can't move up, they can't move down, they will be in fourth. So if any team decides to say, you know, somebody's got a bump or a bruise, let's give him a little bit of time so he's 100% healthy, they're the team that could probably do it. There is so much at stake in terms of home ice advantage and positioning that for London, Saginaw, and Sault Ste. Marie, this is full out. This is like it's playoffs already. The uh, the Storm have given the Knights some troubles this year. The Saginaw gave him uh, the Saginaw Spirit gave him some trouble. Like, is, is there a team that you like kind of best against the Knights, or are they all kind of like together? With these four, it's kind of flip a four sided coin. They're just they're all good, and you'll be flipping coins to figure out who would come out of the second round in the OHL's Western Conference. Um, Saginaw has been on fire. This is a team that is playing better than they have all year. And so that's a team that you want to be wary of. If, if you could avoid a team that is peaking, yeah, that's that's a good thing. Guelph has these amazing games, and then they have games like they had the other night against Kitchener where they don't win. And in fact, the game isn't that close, and it leaves you scratching your head a little bit. Sault Ste. Marie has suffered more losses lately than they had early in the year. So if you were to pick based on how teams are playing, if you could avoid playing Saginaw right now, uh, that's the one. Sault Ste. Marie is a really, I think they're a good story for the OHL just because they've been able to sustain, you know, some level of consistency over the past couple of years, which is difficult in the league. Obviously, the London Knights have been able to achieve that, but Sault Ste. Marie is not a team just because of where they are. You know, you can draft a player that may not want to go there and it's, it can be difficult to build a team there, but they obviously they're big into analytics, uh, but they've done a really, really good job. Yeah, they have. And they've been through a couple of coaches. Their, their coaches keep getting harvested yeah. by the pro ranks. Sheldon Keith who kind of started off with this, and Kyle Dubas, they're now kind of taking care of things in big roles in the Leafs organization. Keefe is with the Toronto Marlies, and Dubas, of course, is now the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Exactly. So, no, this has been a great organization, and it does make players want to play there, and that's the key. Because, yeah, the geography, again, going back to those sports parents, if you've got somebody who's from Ottawa, and you have to say, well, I'm going to wave goodbye to my 16-year-old son, and he's going to be off in Sault Ste. Marie, I'm hardly going to see him except when he comes to maybe Ottawa or unless I drive to Kingston or Peterborough. Uh, that's that's a tough thing for families to do. But Sault Ste. Marie is such a well-respected organization. They don't usually have trouble with players going to Sault Ste. Marie. And because of the number of players they've been producing that go on to the NHL, because of the success they have had. Uh, and, you know, I love the story of Morgan Frost. He's their leading scorer. And when he was 16 years old, he was a fourth-round pick, and he thought, I'm, I'm not even going to make this team. So he brought a backpack, and he had enough underwear to last him through training camp, which <laughs> was about three days. And at the end of three days, the team came to him and said, uh, we want you to stay around for a while. And he kind of had a shocked look on his face because the first thing he was thinking of was, I'm out of clothes. Not, hey, <laughs> this team likes me, but what, what am I going to wear? What am I going to do? He had to get on the phone with his dad, and his dad had to truck up some, some belongings, and he never left. And so the Greyhounds have drafted well. Morgan Frost coming out of 
the fourth round, and here's a guy that will probably lead the league in scoring this year and go on to a long NHL career. When you've got players like that, kind of like the Knights do, where you can say, look at these guys and look at the success they've had in hockey, it makes you want to go and play. And real quick before we go, uh, Saginaw, I, I looked at the standings the other day, and I was surprised they were in second. I hadn't checked. I knew they were doing well, but I didn't check the standings every day. But they really, I think they've... They've been hot, but they've surprised, uh, I think, a lot of fans recently. And they've surprised their own fans. If you go to Saginaw, first of all, it's the best-smelling rink in anywhere, (laughs) any hockey rink anywhere, because hockey rinks get a bad rap. You walk in, you're supposed to smell a mix of sweat and heat liniment, I think. But this rink has candied almonds. It's a fantastic place to watch a game. And because their fan base had kind of waned a little bit, They had taken big advertising and they had kind of stretched these big plastic billboards across seats. And those seats just weren't for sale. And it helped them to get some money through advertising. And that's how they've been living life for the last few years. Well, little by little this year, one of those comes off and the seats are filled. And then another one comes off and those seats are filled. Now there are no plastic advertising billboards covering up any seats in Saginaw, the fan base is all over it. The team is all over it. They have one of the biggest characters in goal in Ivan Prosvatov, who is a guy who does cartwheels when he has a good game. I think they've told him, you know, maybe not a cartwheel. <laughs> he moonwalked one game recently when he had a good game. And he's somebody that certainly has helped them to win a lot of games. But yeah, it's it's been a good culture shift. And it's such a hard one to make. They've made it. So they deserve a pretty big pat on the back. Pre-game tonight on 980 CFPL, 6.30, uh, puck drop just after 7 o'clock. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks for taking a couple minutes. Thanks for taking all the other minutes. <laughs> we need to take a break. We come back, we'll wrap up the show. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Mary Schiavo, to Gene Twangi, to Dan Gorman, to Vito Buonsante, and Mike Stubbs for coming on the show. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip of an anchor acting like a creep while he incorrectly identifies a man as a woman. Have a great day. I'll be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. The ground is now good to say, oh, you've been joined by a beautiful lady. It's a man, actually, Derek. <laughs>